Welcome to Peer Solutions TIP Family Podcast. TIP stands for Trauma-Informed Primary Prevention. My name is Jennifer Rawhouse, and I founded Peer Solutions with the community in 1996 in Phoenix, Arizona. Our vision is a world where everyone is safe and treated equitably with respect. This is a world free from harm to self, others, and the planet. This is also a world free from harms in childhood. Peer Solutions Tip for Families podcast series will focus on addressing and preventing the root causes of child abuse with positive practical solutions with families and communities, with education, tips, and resources to address and prevent child abuse before it begins. We're extremely grateful for support from the Arizona Child Abuse Prevention License Plate Program through the Arizona Governor's Office. Get your child abuse prevention plates today. Thank you. Okay, let's get started. Our first episode is called The Impact of ACEs on Family. ACEs, in this case, stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. I'd like to introduce you to Ia Afo, a brilliant, honest, super entertaining human being that literally blows my mind with her wealth of experience and information. I suspect you will enjoy every episode and learn a ton. And she's here with me now. Hello, Ia, are you ready? been ready. (laughs) Obviously you've been ready. Okay. I would like to start with having you tell us a little bit or even a lot about yourself. Well, I think um, my background is a little interesting because although I'm from an African family, I grew up in a very Jewish community. And um, growing up in that community, I was always trying to understand kind of the differences between um, my friends and my Jewish friends and their families and what was happening in my families and in our community. Um, As I got older, I started to look at, wow, you know, there was the Holocaust, but then there was also the African Holocaust. We were coming from similar socioeconomic backgrounds. We were having the same foundation in our education. We were growing up in the same neighborhoods, doing the same activities. But the trajectory that my friends were on was very different from the trajectory that I was on and what I saw people in the Black community. So I think it really got my wheels turning about how, you know, how does this happen? Is there some genetic thing that happened to people that were descendants of the slave trade? Like what's going on in our communities? We were in a single parent home. My parents had divorced. My mother, because she comes from that generation of black people that were kind of the first generation to have higher level of education and to have um, to be in a stable financial situation she was always working always going to school always away from the home and that really impacted me that impacted like you know my relationship with her and um, I think you know how I felt about myself how I was moving in the world so in one perspective, you look at it and you say there were so many opportunities because she achieved so much. 
and we could travel and we had a summer home and we went to the Hamptons and did all of these things <clears throat> that black families don't normally do. But on the flip side of that, we were left by ourselves a lot. Growing up, I just remember always thinking like, okay, although um, I feel like my mother did the best that she knew how to do and her intention was really good, I always felt like, okay, mental note, I need to not do that as a parent, or I need to do this as a parent, <laughs> I need to do that, or, you know, I had all these um, ideas about, about my parenting. I feel like I have been depressed for, or I had been depressed for as long as I could remember. If I think back on childhood, um, I always remember some level of sadness, mm -hmm. some level of pain. And I couldn't quite understand why, you know, as I grew up and had this immense pain and suicidal ideation and all of these things, I kept looking back trying to understand like, but why, what happened that was so terrible? You know, what, what happened, what happened, what happened? Mm -hmm. You know, I think about kids growing up today in similar families that maybe are one parent families that the parents are working hard or the one parent is working hard um, and they don't have those connections. But the difference between I feel like today and what I experienced as a child was I had a lot of resilience through teachers at school. As crazy as this is going to sound, like my second grade teacher, Mrs. Griffin, I'll never forget Aww. her, Susan Marie Griffin. I used to spend weekends at her house, you know, like she would literally come and pick me up and she had this brownstone in Manhattan and it was beautiful and she didn't have children. Uh -huh. um, I think she wanted children. We had this fit. I kind of needed some extra mothering because my mom wasn't available in that way and she needed to be a mother, and so she mothered me. That just gave me so much um, feel self-esteem and feeling good about myself. And in school, I was always in the honors programs, and she pushed me always to do better and to be the best, and she always believed in me. I think about Mrs. Keene and Mrs. Amorosi. Mrs. Keene was, I think, probably in her 60s, she loved calligraphy and I wanted to learn calligraphy and she would stay after school with me until five and six o'clock in the evening teaching me calligraphy. And even as the black girl in the school, you know, when we think about, you know, racial things and um, discrimination and prejudice, I don't know in that moment that that existed for Mrs. Keene. I don't know if it existed anywhere else in her world. But in, in those moments, it didn't exist because she was willing to pour into me, you know? And we don't see that as much no. now. You know, there's a big difference in how teachers teach and, sure. you know, and what kids are able to get from the school environment and how aggressive the school environment can be. For me, this really was part of how I was able to overcome some of the loneliness, some of the sadness, neglect. some of the neglect, you know, all these feelings, um, which is why it's important, I think, for us to help our parents understand some of the things that we can do to 
enhance our parenting, to provide these things or to think about, yes, we've got to be earning money and we have all these things, but we also have children that don't have the ability to have resilience in other places because the school environment is not like that anymore. I moved through, I, I was able to be resilient in a lot of ways. I went off to college and the depression was always there. The depression became very debilitating as I got older and into my early 20s. It really wasn't until I started traveling and reconnecting to my roots and traveling back to Africa that I was able to, to get well. And I think um, that really got me interested in all of these things about childhood adversity and historical trauma. You know, what happens to people that, um, who have ancestors that have gone through trauma. Brilliant. And you're talking about trauma in your DNA. And I can't wait to hear more about what you've learned and how that played out um, within this podcast. I think that's an absolute great lead in to our first episode, which is about the impact of ACEs on families. And so let's let's get into it. All right. So, Ia, tell us about ACEs. So in this context, we're talking about adverse childhood experiences. And the way this even came about was in the 1990s, around uh, the early 1990s, there was um, a, an obesity clinic at Kaiser Permanente. And the obesity clinic was extremely uh, successful in helping people lose weight. So after a while, even though the program was successful, people were losing weight, the doctor noticed that sometimes people would drop out of this program, even though they had been successful in losing weight. And he just couldn't understand, you know, like why, if it's, if the program is working, why are the people dropping out? So he started to ask people questions, go into interviews. And what he started to find was the deeper he went into the, you know, um, patient history, the more he would hear specifically about sexual abuse. So the numbers of patients reporting sexual abuse kept going higher and higher and higher. And he's yep. saying to himself, like, this can't be right. This has to be, um, this has to be incorrect. Because again, realize that, well, I didn't even say it yet, but we're talking about uh, people in San Diego, California, um, middle class, white people were the people in this program. And so he kept thinking this can't be right because people would know about this. Somebody would have done something about it. The number of um, people that had experienced sexual abuse was mind blowing. So he gets together with the CDC and um, starts talking about the results that he had from, this, from his own small study. And the CDC, together with Dr. Folletti, um, put together the largest study about childhood adversity. So there was something like 17,000 people from San Diego area, middle class, 
college educate, you know, had some level of college, um, had health insurance, had, you know, pretty stable lives. So mm-hmm. we're talking about people that were relatively stable, had the things that they needed, and these numbers are this high for sexual right. abuse. They continued to do the study with these 17,000 people, and they found that 67% of the people in that population had experienced um, at least one adverse childhood experience and that 20% had experienced three or more adverse childhood experiences. In a minute, we'll go into the criteria they used um, mm-hmm. to determine these, the, this adversity. But ultimately, the real reason that this was important was not because you know, people cared about children being abused, you know, like we would like to think that it was because of that. Um, It really wasn't. But what they found was that people that had gone through some level of childhood adversity had health outcomes, Right. right? Started with Kaiser Permanente. Ding, ding, ding. That means it's costing insurance companies money. So that's why there was all this effort and all this money put into this um, into this topic. And mm-hmm. because, of course, later we find that uh, people that go through childhood adversity have, um, you know, heart disease issues, lung disease, obesity, diabetes, on and on and on. Okay, tell me more about this study. What does it measure? What are the criteria? Okay, so the ACEs study measures 10 forms of abuse. And, you know, I want to use the word abuse lightly because in some of these cases, um, I think, like if we, when we're talking about neglect, I think it's unintentional sometimes. And if we always just say so harshly, abuse, 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 and shame parents, I think people won't be receptive to what we're saying. So I agree. we have forms of abuse that are intentional, and then we have other pieces that have been harming to children that perhaps are unintentional, but still have an impact on the child. You know what I mean? The ACEs study measures 10 forms of abuse and neglect. And as we go through the the measures, I don't want anybody to feel um, that they're being blamed for something or to feel like a bad parent or a bad person because that's one of the problems that we find with ACEs. Even though this information comes all the way from the 90s and we've (laughs) known about it all this time, we really haven't progressed as far as we should have in preventing some of these things. And some of the reason for that is because in order to address ACEs, we have to take a look at ourselves. So if we are always pointing the finger or making people feel guilty or making people feel like, you know, they're a terrible human being, we don't have the opportunity to encourage people to have self-reflection. 
I want people to be able to really take an honest look at themselves about what they've been through or about what their own children have been through so that we work together to prevent it from moving forward. So let's really move into this in a space of, uh, you know, kindness and compassion. And we're having a conversation. We're taking a look at ourselves. We're acknowledging what we've been through and potentially what our kids have gone through. And I love the without shame. And that's why we're always like, it's the behavior, not the person. And these have been normalized behaviors for generations. And so if we can all get away from that self-blame and loathing, which we all face every day probably, and really look at the behaviors, then we can prevent them and address them. And the more we all as a community, regardless of who we are, get that, then we can stop this stuff before it begins. And then we can help people that have been through it, including parents that are dealing with this and trying to figure out how to navigate. So what is this? So 10 areas that um, were measured and people ask, or the survey asks these questions. So has a, the emotional abuse uh, portion says, has a parent, step parent, or adult living in your home swore at you, insulted you, put you down, or acted in a way that made you feel afraid that you might be physically hurt? Physical abuse. A parent, step-parent, or adult living in your home pushed, grabbed, slapped, threw something at you, or hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured. Sexual abuse. An adult, relative, family friend, or stranger who was at least five years older than you ever touched or fondled your body in a sexual way, made you touch his or her body in a sexual way, attempted to have any type of sexual intercourse with you. Mother treated violently. Has your mother or stepmother been pushed, grabbed, slapped, had something thrown at her, kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, hit with something hard, repeatedly hit over at least a few minutes or ever threatened or hurt by a knife or a gun by your father, stepfather, or mother's boyfriend? Substance abuse in the household. Um, Has a household member um, been a problem drinker or alcoholic or a household member used street drugs? Mental illness in the household. Um, A household member was depressed or mentally ill or a household member attempted suicide. Parental separation or divorce. Your parents were, have your parents ever been separated or divorced? incarcerated household member, a household member went to prison, emotional neglect, someone in your family helped you feel important or special, you felt loved, people in your family looked out for each other or felt close to each other and your family was a source of strength and support. Physical neglect, There was someone to take care of you, protect you, and take you to the doctor if you needed it. You didn't have enough to eat. Your parents were too drunk or high to take care of you, and you had to wear dirty clothes. These are, those are the 10 um, survey questions. Now, one of the things I want to address before we even move any further is the fact that at this point, we often start to have some level of pushback. 
Because at this point, people start to say, well, I was whooped and I came out just fine. Or, you know, I had this happen and Uh I came out just fine. And, you know, and let's talk about that for a minute. I have lived in several different cultures, right? So lived among people and participated in culture. So uh, when I lived in India... And my son was about six or seven, and he went to school. If he misbehaved, he was hit with a stick. So this was part of life. And so he went, he was in second grade, so I guess at seven. And he comes home one day and he says, Mom, the teacher slapped me with a stick today. And I have to tell you, I didn't feel... I wasn't that concerned about it. Like, I know he wanted me to, you know, have all these emotions about it. But my reaction really was, okay, well, is it because you were black? And he was like, no. And I said, okay, do you understand? Because, of course, we had language barrier, right? Do you understand why you were hit? And he says, yes. And I said, and, you know, he's the baby in the family. He has brothers that are 10 and 12 years older than him. Um, we didn't necessarily expect to have him. He's everybody's baby, right? So he's not used to anybody doing anything that's uncomfortable to him, right? Okay, so let's make sure we know that. So now he's (laughs) waiting for me, you know, to have this big reaction. And really my reaction was, well, are you okay? He said, yes. And I said, okay, well, I I suggest you don't do whatever the thing is tomorrow. Do you understand what the rules are and what the boundaries are? Yes. And you better stay within the boundaries. I don't feel like that was necessarily an abusive situation for him. I think in the context of that culture, in the context of how he's treated, how um, everybody is an extension of the family, how teachers love their students and want them to be successful, And at the same time that they can hit you with a stick for not doing the thing that you need to be doing, that same teacher was over the moon and getting translators to tell me how successful he was in learning Hindi and Malayalam, you know, with that same joy Uh and that same level. In that context, yeah. And so in that context, I don't feel like it was abusive for him. Uh We moved to China um, about a year later and he was training in martial arts you know he's Mr. Kung Fu and so in that environment you know you have your Shifu teacher slash father you have this relationship with this person that loves you and that you don't want to let down and again in this context when you go to your do your training, if you do something wrong, you're going to get hit with the bamboo stick. If you <laughs> really um, do something very, very egregious, you will be put on the floor in front of everybody and you'll be hit with a bamboo stick. So you have shame and you have um, corporal punishment happening at the same time. My experience in that culture, again, was that was not an abusive experience for him. So people probably think I'm nuts or people feel like, you know, every time I've talked about it, people are like, how could you let somebody hit your kid? That same person that hit my kid 
loved my child. That same community is the community that when he's out running to do his training, you had grandmothers standing outside holding a peach for him to grab the peach and eat the peach as he ran the mountain, you know? Yes. So yeah, you know, so that level of love. So I don't know in that environment. Again, it's cultural. Again, it's cultural. So I don't think we say, um, I grew up getting spanked and I'm okay. Because realistically, maybe you are. But just like I talked about being a child, experiencing certain things that were painful in my home, I then went to school all day where I spent the majority of my time surrounded by people that loved me and thought, you know, extremely highly of me and went out of their way to show me love and do extra for me. So, you know, in that environment, when there's so much love and so much kindness and so much nurturing, um, it could have been, a di- you know, it, it might be different. Right. But what I know now is that in the environment in which we live now and what children have to endure outside of the home all day, every day in um, school environments that teachers are stressed to the max that teachers are potentially being mistreated and not having their needs met and trying to do their best to to educate our children. I think we can't look at it with the same eyes that we once did or Mm -hmm. that we can look at it in other cultures. So before people, you know, are quick to say, I was whooped and I came out great I think we have to look at, um, you know, we have to have it in context. And mm-hmm. I and I think what's happening with our kids now and potentially what happened with the people that are talking about in this study, it was an environment that impacted them. Mm-hmm. Let's look at what's happening in our world. Um, it's not a, a space to where you need to have a, a lot of anger or a lot of guilt and blaming. It's really just a space of, let's take a look. Let's evaluate what's going on. Right. And that's why I'm so excited that we're having this because it does go so beyond that. And by diving in and really looking at what's going on today Mm -hmm. versus then versus beginning of time, beginning of um, some little history, which we're going to get into, by really understanding that, then we can get at the real root of what we're looking at today. By addressing these and really getting at it, we can change everything. I really believe that. Um, What we're... Even then, what were some big highlights from that study? Like, what were some of, you know, of all these types of harms? What were some that really stuck out then? Well, you know, of course, every area is, is concerning. But yeah. um, let's start by highlight, highlighting the top three. So substance abuse, physical abuse, and sexual abuse were really at the top of the list. So 29.5% of females and 23.8% of males reported substance abuse in the home. Um, 27% of females, 29.9% of males reported physical violence in the home. 
Uh, 24.7% of females and 16% of males reported being sexually abused. So, um, you know, this is a topic that's often dismissed when talking about ACEs. Um, and we can also say that these issues rarely stand alone. So typically when there's one ACE, there's more ACEs. If there's substance abuse, then we know that it's much more likely that there's physical and sexual abuse as well. The other thing that I have to say about the, um, the areas that are concerning and the study in itself, I want to keep emphasizing this was the study done with white middle class, some level of education, has health insurance group. So these numbers don't touch nope. what was happening in, with people of color. These numbers don't touch um, experiences that have to do with racism or oppression, historical trauma. You know, it, it, these numbers have nothing to do with any of that. So this is middle, we're talking right now, middle America that's willing to answer truthfully to those questions in the 1990s. Which is amazing. And the truth is, we know everything you look at in, in this world can be drawn back to harms in childhood. And when you look at how do we prevent ACEs before they begin, how do we address this? If we don't start really getting into ACEs in marginalized communities, I'm doing the quotation marks, for example, 61% of black children and 51% of Hispanic children, Latinx children, have experienced at least one ACE as compared to 40% of white children. And, and if we don't look at that and really look at, well, why do we have it in the first place? We have to have to have to go to the root. And we know that some populations are dramatically more vulnerable to experiencing ACEs and a bunch of other harms because of historical, social, and economic uh, conditions. And unless we really get the historical trauma and why this has been going on, um, we're never going to get to it. That is what we're living out today. And unless we get to that root and understand our history, all of us, we're never, ever, ever going to get to it. But okay, let's talk about historical trauma. What is it? How does it relate? And all of the above. So, you know, in order to prevent ACEs, um, you know, adverse childhood experiences, we have to understand the root causes. And historical trauma is absolutely a root cause of childhood adver adversity. There is this amazing man, uh, Dr. Anthony Pico, and he is from the Viejas Band um, of Cunha, Indians in San Diego and he says that historical trauma is the father to adverse childhood experiences and the twin to substance abuse and addiction and mm. yeah I mean I feel like that just described it you know he's just somebody from this incredible past that has gone through all these things and just really has nailed it we hear several terms, right? We'll hear 
historical trauma, intergenerational trauma, or collective trauma. And really, all three of them are referring to the same phenomenon. They just look at it from a different perspective. So historical trauma is talking about an instance or a group of um, instances that have happened, obviously, you know, in the past, in your history. Intergenerational trauma is really referring to those same issues that happen, but it's from the perspective of it's then passed. The, the response from those instances are then passed from one generation to the next. Collective trauma, still talking about the same thing, but we're just looking at it from the perspective of how the collective has been impacted. So, for example, we usually talk about the collective as like people from of African descent that have gone through the slave trade holocaust, right? That's one collective. Or Native Americans in the United States is another collective. But like we're going through COVID-19 right now. Mm-hmm. This should be a time where everybody is coming together because this time the collective is the human race, you know, human yeah. beings everywhere, all over the world, you know, are being impacted by this. So we're impacted as a collective because we can say, um, well, I don't have um, COVID and I haven't gotten COVID, right? But we really start to understand how we're really interconnected um, because if my neighbor has COVID, I'm impacted by that, right? I'm impacted by rules that we need to have in the community. I'm impacted by um, maybe stores closing or this happening. You know, everybody in the collective is impacted by a particular incident. When we have a traumatic event or a series of events or conditions that could be traumatic for people, this is the idea of historical trauma. When you have one of those events that happen like oppression, you know, one group of people being oppressed, the trauma that happens from that group of people goes from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. We are right now today impacted by what has happened to our ancestors. We are the cumulative expression of our ancestors. Um, I'm going to give a story now. I'm going to tell a story so that we can really understand what, what we're looking at. My um, maternal grandfather was born in Alabama. People, Africans in the United States, you know, we came here by several different ways, right? So we could have been stolen from West Africa and then come directly to the United States and sold in the United States, or we could have been stolen from West Africa and gone to the West Indies or South America or somewhere and then migrated here to the United States um, of our own free will after slavery ended, or we could have gone, been stolen from West Africa and then sold into the West Indies or, 
you know, South America, Central America, and then sold again into the United States, right? So we have several different ways that we got here. Most of my family comes from the Caribbean. We have one um, part of my lineage that came from the South, Mississippi, and that's my maternal grandfather. So when I'm doing a visual presentation, I, I show his face as like an example of historical trauma because here he is a black man, but if you look at his features, you really couldn't tell what he is. His father was a white man and they don't know if it was a consensual relationship or not. And his mother, of course, a black woman, um, he's born in, you know, uh, 1918. So at that time, a white man could not father a black woman's child. So the father was gone and the mother then died in childbirth. So he was raised by his aunts. When he was about four or five years old, he and his aunt went into a store to purchase some items. And the owner of that store kind of lured my great aunt into the back of the store. My grandfather went along and he tried to rape her. And she took an umbrella, she grabbed an umbrella and beat him almost to death. In that moment, the family had to then gather their resources and pay to have my great aunt and my grandfather move up north because of course there's no circumstance oh she was in trouble that right? that's right so there's no circumstance in the world and during that time that would allow for <laughs> a black woman to beat a white man so we have this child my grandfather who one doesn't know his father because of the father being white and not being able to be there to parent a child. So you have the shame of being thrown away by the father. You have the mother that died during childbirth. So now he doesn't have a mother. He's raised by the aunts. He's experienced the oppression of living in Alabama. He's watched his aunt almost be raped and then He's forced to leave his family, his home, everything that he knows behind and move north. This is one trauma on top of another, on top of another, on top of another, right? So the result is, well, somebody that was always hypervigilant, always on edge, always aggressive. Um, somebody that drank a lot of alcohol. Somebody that when it was time for me to go to college and I said I was going to school in Maryland, I mean, he was beside himself because for him, Maryland was in the South. He was horrified that my mother would allow me to go to school in Maryland and it really triggered mm -hmm. all of his emotion around being, you know, raised in the South. So you... We also have this, you know, environmental piece of being prejudiced against white people because, you know, white people were people that had oppressed him, that had hurt him, that had abandoned him, all of these things. So that impacts how he raised my mother, that impacts how my mother raised me, that impacts how I move in the world. His anxiety impacts uh, my mother's level of anxiety. If you knew my mother, 
at the time you think that she's just a person that is always aggressive and always combative. When you really start to understand stress and you start to understand ACEs, you see that she is always in fight or flight. Always. She lives in fight or flight. That's why she's alive. Right. Exactly. So we have all of these things that impact us. People don't realize, you know, as the black community, if we're still talking about um, rights and oppression and all these things, people say, oh, yes, but slavery was you know, 400 years ago. Slavery was so long ago. They don't understand that what happened in these times still impacts us today. It impacts us environmentally in ways that I just spoke about because of somebody's point of view, because somebody's life experiences, but it also impacts us on the level of our DNA. And through um, a science called epigenetics, we'll discuss how that happens, but we'll, we'll wait on the epigenetic piece for a little while and you know we'll talk about it a little bit later. So, um, yeah, because I'd like to know what happened. Great grandpa or grandpa? Grandpa. Grandpa. Mm -hmm. You know, he was born in 1917, but what did he come out of? You right. know, like right. what's in his DNA? Where mm -hmm. was, what was his story? And right. you're already talking three generations dramatically affected yes. by his story and not even the pre-story. Right. Absolutely. When we are talking about historical trauma, I want to really emphasize that what we're talking about has to do with specific events in, in time, you know, that impacted the collective. And I'm giving the example, of course, of black people in America, because I'm black, I'm speaking from, you know, my life and my life experience. Of course, that's not the only group that has undergone some level of historical trauma. And realistically, most groups have gone through some level of historical trauma. So when we talk about historical trauma, we'll often get pushback from dominant culture, you know, white body people that say, yes, but I've gone through trauma. We have a lot of that. And so I will say that, yes, there are many instances of trauma. You know, we have um, the Irish potato famine, you know, and that was... A significant trauma that people went through so it's not to say that other groups have not gone through trauma the reason we focus so much on people of color right now is because it's the people of color that are continuing to be oppressed by the structural racism it's the people of color that you know it's the black people and so much black men, you know, being shot in the back. So right now we're, we're having crisis with people of color, right? We're talking about, um, people of Mexican origin at the border and families being separated and families being destroyed. We're looking at Native American communities that are still being decimated. So by COVID by, to start right, with, right. By COVID to start with, which all historical trauma as well, uh -huh. you know? So we talk a lot about black indigenous people of color because those communities are really in trouble, but it does not take away 
the fact that many groups have gone through historical trauma. And I encourage when I teach my courses on historical trauma, I teach dominant culture people, look in your history, look in your family's history, where if you're Irish, if you're Italian, if you're Nordic, what, you know, wherever you're from, what traumas have your people gone through? How have you been resilient? What um, encouraged and supported your resilience? What traumas have your direct family gone through? And how have you been uh, resilient in those ways? Because that will help people to understand why it's so important that we really address and look at some of the things uh, when we're talking about Black, Indigenous, people of color. When we hear BIPOC, right. and we hear BIPOC a lot, and, and I remember yes. hearing it a lot years ago, what's yes. BIPOC, what's BIPOC? Yes. <laughs> Black, Indigenous, people of color. Yes. And it's it's a wonderful way of saying, yeah, look at that. That's mm -hmm. exactly what we're talking about. And it's it doesn't like put everybody in the same bag. It's important that everybody take a look and see how they've been impacted and see um, so that they can have a little bit more compassion and see why it makes sense. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about slavery, slavery, slavery. It's hard for people, unless you understand historical trauma, it's hard to understand why are they still talking about slavery when the law says that you have the right to have the same job as I have, or you have the right to live in the same neighborhood as I. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think we have to look at different groups of people and what the history really is for those groups. Because we like to, and this is all of us, have some level of bias or we look at people and we label them in some kind of way or we have a particular feeling about an entire group of people, but we don't really know or recognize what the history is and how things ended up the way they've ended up. Now, I'm not going to say that any one group is more important than the next. We only have, you know, so much time to talk about, you know, the different groups. So I'm going to kind of go through quickly cool. and I'll just talk about, you know, a couple of, of different groups of people. So if we look at people with disabling conditions, we look at the oppression and discrimination that against them that can be traced you know all the way back to biblical times and potentially earlier than that certainly we know that if we look at the lgbtq plus community um, there's the long 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 history of discrimination and oppression and really you know violence and that goes back a very long time. Then we can look at groups, we can look at different ethnic groups. If we talk about black people or African-American people, we're talking about the slave trade Holocaust that happened in West Africa. For the last almost 30 years, I've spent time on the continent talking to our traditional historians cultural leaders, spiritual leaders in the bush, they will, you know, consistently tell you that Europeans went to the continent and went to West Africa. Most people of African descent that live in the United States come from somewhere in West Africa. 
And when Europeans came, they were looking for people that could help build the new world. They went around to different tribes where tribes didn't get along with one another. They incited issues and then said, look, you know, I overheard this tribe and they were going to, you know, talking about destroying you and hurting you. <laughs> we have arms. We have, you know, firearms and we'll trade you if you give us some people for the next seven years to help us build the new world will give you firearms so that you can protect yourself against warring tribes. Note that the initial agreement was about indentured servitude. So the mm -hmm. agreement was to take a certain number of Africans, they're going to help build the new world, we bring them home. In exchange, we give you firearms. That was the initial thing, and if you've ever seen the movie Amistad and you're confused about what's happening in that movie, that's what the movie was about. It was about the Africans that were supposed to be returned back to the continent mm. after they served and did their seven years, and they were not returned. Because what happened was um, they realized that, wow, there's a lot of money in you know buying and selling human beings and so uh -huh. that's what started to happen so then right. we started we moved out of this servitude and we started to you know steal people and enslave people and this was to generate income once we then got to uh, the new world it wasn't just about having people serve and um, build and and help create the new world it was we need to destroy these people so that we can keep them under our control for a long period of time. So while there's always been slavery and there always will be slavery and there continues to be slavery today, right now, today, um, you know, this was really about destruction like you had not really seen. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot done to destroy them, not only the physical violence and the psychological violence, but there was a lot that happened on the continent and off with economic destruction. Yep. Um, cultural dispossession. And people yep. don't like to talk about the stripping of the cultural identity. Cultural identity is big and the economic destruction is huge, especially on the continent, because if we look back, um, on Africa right now, we're talking about a continent of 54 countries that has been um, unnaturally chopped up by European countries. And right. the way they chopped up Africa, because right, the way Africa is now is not the way Africa was before. It was, you take this piece, you know, England, and we, the French, will take this piece, and the Spanish, you can have this yeah. piece, and the Portuguese, you can have this piece. And it was chopped up in a way so that these countries would not have a Any stable, uh -huh. yeah, and, and not have a, a, a stable um, economic infrastructure so that they would always be dependent mm -hmm. on European countries yeah. and so that European countries could always take advantage of them. So when we look back at Africa, Africa has all the resources in the world, right? But the way it's been chopped up and the way things have happened it's made all these countries so economically unstable 
and um, continuously exploited by European countries what's happening right now still today. Exactly. So the economic destruction piece is big and the cultural um, dispossession is big. And so if you're trying to keep people under control for long periods of time, you have to really destroy them. So you destroy their family structure. You know, yeah. in black indigenous people of color, the family's the heart of everything. So you destroy the family structure by separating the men away from their families. Of course. Keeping, um, you know, so there were, were practices that were, that happened on plantations that were specifically to keep men separated from if there was a woman and children that they had family with, there was a big emphasis to keep him separated because in keeping the man separated from the rest of what they were trying to create as a family unit, you created women that learned how to um, handle all the chores in the home. You, um, you taught women to, to do all the physical labor, to take care of the children, to be able to cook the food, to do all of the chores so that when the man came back into his home, he was really displaced in the home. So there would be a constant imbalance in the family structure. There were practices that you took the biggest and darkest, um, most threatening enslaved male on the plantation. You gathered everybody on the plantation around. You beat him within an inch of his mm -hmm. life. And in doing that, you taught mothers to love their sons but they better raise them to be passive because if they don't raise them to be passive and to not be able to not be self-sufficient and to have too much self-esteem and be too proud, they too would undergo that type of treatment. And as a mother, of course, you don't want that to happen. So traditionally we've loved our sons. We've, um, you know, done everything for them, but we've groomed our daughters to, be able to do everything, everything in the home, to have a higher level of education, to have better jobs, to take control over everything so that there's always that imbalance in our families, in our family unit. So you'll still see so much of that today. You know, women in, in our communities, of course, the women are the backbone, you know, we're doing everything. But if we have males in our home, and of course, you know, gender roles have changed and gender roles are, are very different. But from a historical perspective, when there were more traditional gender roles, the idea is that if you have a black male and in his home, he has no role in the home and in the community, he is a threat and has no place. Walking um, down the street, just saying. Right always the threat um you know what do you end up with and of course the black male has always been a threat this Speaking is why of dna trauma right hello. because if you think about how do you um come to a continent which does not belong to you right you are european and you see all of these strong black men you know, doing their day-to-day -day chores, having to, to have strength, having to have athleticism and all of these things, you're intimidated. But you have to think of how do I come here on these people's territory and be able to steal people without them fighting back. So there's the threat there. When we get on the plantation, the same thing. If you have an uprising of yeah. all these strong people that are used to yeah. being out in the fields doing a yeah. lot of work, you know, they, they're, oh, they can overpower you. So this threat 
has always, always been there. And, and still is. And still is. For parents of children. Yes. And the children's. Exactly. So that's, you know, that's the history there for the African-American community. If we look at the, you know, the Mexican community, specifically in the Southwest, of course, this used to be Mexico, right? So we go back to the history of Mexican origin people. And we have, again, the Spanish coming to colonize indigenous Mexico. They start killing off people because they brought disease that um, the indigenous people of Mexico weren't used to having. So we start killing off people. Then we take over land and then we force indigenous Mexicans, hey, we're taking your land. We're going to have you work that land. So you need to farm that land. And then you need to pay me money for farming the land that I allowed you to farm. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So this idea of exploiting Mexican origin people for cheap labor has gone back to what was happening when, uh, you know, Mexico was still Mexico, right? When when the Southwest was, was still Mexico. Then we have the Mexican-American War and the Anglo-Americans, air quote, win that war. We have this treaty that's supposed to be in place that preserves the rights of Mexican origin people. And somehow in that treaty, those rights that they were supposed to have was somehow left out of the treaty, right? But they got 55% so, <laughs> of the land, so they're good. Right, exactly. So now we have the Anglos, you know, that have taken... Uh, what we now call Arizona and Utah and Colorado and parts of, California, parts of California, on and on and on. And we start to set up borders. Now, if you were of Mexican origin and you decided to stay in what was going to now be America, no longer Mexico, after a year, you're supposed to have citizenship. If you did not stay for that year, then... Um, you didn't have citizenship and now you're separated by this border that has been put up on land that was your land so literally literally your land so this is the start even of separating and destroying mexican families exactly right? so again we have families that um you know the the foundation of the fam uh, uh, the foundation of the community is family and right from here, now we're having the separation of family, the destruction of family. What we're seeing on the other side, on the now American side of the border is you're supposed to have this citizenship and okay, we've given you citizenship on again, your land, right? But your schools need to be segregated. Oh, there need bet. to be, you know, special schools for Mexicans that are over here. In the barrios. In, in the barrios. And we're going to create certain, you know, we'll start to create certain um, neighborhoods, right? Where Mexicans are supposed to be that are separate from where Anglos are. Yeah, you couldn't go into restaurants, nothing. We couldn't. Um, where there's supposed to be laws that are protecting people. There aren't laws protecting you from discrimination and segregation. You need to assimilate 
So you need to try to be like us, but you're really never going to be one of us, but you need to give up everything that makes you who you are. And that is, you know, a part of the, the fabric of your community. And so then you have parents that say, well, I don't want to teach my children Spanish because I want them to assimilate into being like the Anglos. Mm -hmm. So you can't speak Spanish in the home and we're not even going to teach you Spanish because I need you to be as Anglo as possible because that's how you're going to be successful. That's how you're going to survive. (laughs) Not get killed. Exactly. So we have, you know, this... um, exploitation and again you know we're still going to exploit you for work and we still want you to work for pennies or for nothing have the uh, cultural identity stripping we have this separation having different type of education and what's going to happen well you're going to start to internalize this you know um, Dr. Estrada, Antonio Estrada out of University of Arizona has done a lot of work surrounding um, the Mexican-American community and historical trauma. He's one of the only people I found that really has done a lot of work on this. And he talks about the internalizing of Mm -hmm. all of these feelings of um, being less than and all of these abuses that have happened. And so you have a whole community of people starting to internalize this, right? How does that affect self-esteem? How does that affect how people feel? How does that affect what you do? What you do? Everything. You know, it affects, it it impacts every part of the community, every part of the families, right? And then we still have, in all of these groups where we started this separation of families very early on, we perpetuate that today through incarceration and through removing children from the homes of black indigenous people of color, you know, at twice uh, the rate that we do for white families. This very much um, is going to impact a whole community of people. So we can go back to Spanish colonization and we can go back to Spanish American war. We go very far back, but it's still impacting people today. You know, during the 20th century, we had social scientists looking at Mexican culture, evaluating Mexican culture, and then saying that there was a deficit in the culture itself. So you have these social scientists, right, that are on the outside. Like you're not even part of, you know, this community of people. So you really don't know and you judge the community. But... The part that really gets me is that the social scientists then perpetuate Mm -hmm. all of this ignorance and all of this racism and all of this discrimination and all of these um, stereotypes about this group of people. That's where we've gotten a lot of the stereotypes is from the 20th century and social scientists. That's right. And when we're talking about what, what, what we're talking about, which doesn't make sense. Out of one side of your mouth, you're going to stereotype this group of people and say they're lazy. On the other side, you say they're taking all of our jobs. Well, you can't have it both ways. You know what I mean? Like, which one is it? You, you know what I mean? One minute you have this stereotype that you right. want to perpetuate. Right. And then on the other minute, oh, we got to get them out of here because they're, they're taking all of our jobs from us. Well, no, it's not both things. You know, somewhere there's a lie that you're telling 
that people have continued to perpetuate over and over and over and stigmatize people. The last group that I want to talk about in terms of the historical trauma, of course, is the Native American community. You know, each group kind of had their own thing, you know. So for African Americans, of course, it was about labor and exploiting labor. And for um, Mexican, uh, people of Mexican origin, same kind of thing, you know, taking resources from the land, trying to spread religion and um, exploiting labor. And for Native American, it was very much genocide, you know. So from the beginning, it was every for every scalp you bring us of a Native American person, you're going to get paid a certain amount of money. So people were going around killing, scalping Native Americans. They go to the federal government. They got paid for each scalp that they brought. But after that period of time, then there were several different phases that Native Americans went through. And they talked about it in terms of the six strategies to deal with the Native American, the, the quote, Native American problem or the Indian problem in America. And so after they decided not to scalp everyone, they had this um, agreement between equals and there was a promise that uh, we're not, if you give us this amount of land, then we're not going to take any more land from you and we're not going to let people aggress you and on and on and on, which of course was a lie. Right. You know, that's not at all what happened. So then they moved into um, the space of um, allotment. So, and you know, the reservations. So, okay, well, we're not going to kill them all, but as long as they stay you know, in these particular areas, then it'll be fine. We're just going to have them go on this piece of land. We'll control their movement. They can't leave unless we say it's okay to leave. And then everything will be okay then. And so then that put uh, people in kind of a situation of depending, you know, a lot on the American government. After we need to, you know, assimilate everybody. And so we did the boarding school tragedies where the federal government went on to each uh, reservation, took every child that was age five and over, put them in these residential schools where the whole idea was, of course, to strip them of the, their cultural identification they very abusive environments. When you talk to elders on the community or you talk to some of the spiritual people on the community, they will tell you how often children were raped and sodomized. Oh, yeah. And, of course, physically abused. Completely true. I mean, you know. So, Fact. yeah. I mean, so it, this is, we're talking about how all of these things, you know, still impact people and certainly impact families, right? Because even just that alone... How's that going to impact the family? Well, you're taking children away from parents, right? So those parents that will one day become grandparents don't have the opportunity to parent because their kids have been removed, right? Then you have the children that have grown up in these residential facilities and they don't know how it is to interact in a family setting because they're in, you know, this Opposite um, of family opposite, setting. Right. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. Opposite in every way right. of a family Hero. setting. Right. So 
no, um, you know, feeling devoid of cultural identity. Yes. 100%, right? 100%. And not having family. You know, how do we act as a sibling? You know, some of our first relationships are with siblings. And then not having parents or having the people that are supposed to be parents really your abusers, right? Because in, in, you know, collaboration with, uh, churches, various churches, the government was running these boarding schools and certainly abusing them. Every time they spoke in their native tongue, they were beaten. If they acted in their traditional ways, they were beaten. You're then being raised by people whose entire purpose in your life is to abuse you in some way. But then at some point, you're going to leave the residential boarding school. You're going to have your own families. So if you've never been parented, how do you then know how to parent? If you have only seen the example of parenting as this abuse, how do you then learn how to parent? Now, and cope. Right, and, and cope. So, you know, so we're still looking at uh, having to work through so many of these things. So in, this, in that case, we're not even talking about the genetic impact yet, right? We can just look at the environmental impact of removing children from future grandparents and putting children in situations where they're not raised with parents who are then going to go out and become parents. So you can see there where you have the destruction of the family. And as egalitarian and tribal people, families live in a certain way. And all of these children are being raised not in that familial environment, not really knowing how to operate in that family environment, not knowing how to operate in that egalitarian community. We then, we had this history, this give and, and, and pull history with the Native American people. No, we'll push them out here. No, we'll put them on this land. Well, guess what? There's gold under this land, you know? So by 1830, oh, removal act. And we have the Trail of Tears. So we remember the Trail of Tears in association with the Cherokee Nation, but really that happened to 40 other tribes. So we had this thing of, we're going to go in the middle of the night in the dead of winter and march people 800 miles, 1,000 miles to, you know, another piece of land. We're going to burn down their dwellings. We're going to kill their off their animals put them someplace else where they have to learn how to, to work that land. They have to learn to eat different foods than they were used to. Um, they have to start over the economic destruction piece that we talked about that goes along with colonization and historical trauma. Disease. We destroy you. Yes, disease, on and on and on. And so here you have the ability to truly destroy an entire, you know, group of people. Then we have, you know, another act where we separate you again. Well, let's have you go out into the world and get jobs and get away from your family so you don't keep acting like Native Americans. We want to strip you of that culture. And one way to do that is get you away from your family and let you feel like you're earning money and so forth. So here you have the opportunity to earn money and and uh, you know have some wages, but you're separated from your culture and from your family. So now you have that loss that you're dealing with. You, you see, so we've had this entire history of this happening to these people where again, you see economic destruction, cultural dispossession, and the destruction of the family structure. So we have a whole history of this. And so what has that history done? How does that history impact 
um, these same groups of people today. This is the discussion about um, historical trauma. And, you know, and that's where we are. And that's why it's so important to have um, conversations like this so we can start talking about family again and how Thank do we you. heal some of these things and how do we heal our families and um, really uh, get to the root cause of, of, uh, of the violence. We're just talking history. Yeah. Now let's talk epigenetics and science and what this is looking like. And, and we'll get back to solutions, yeah. but let's talk about that. When you start looking at BIPOC communities and the history and what's going on today and saying, well, that happened so long ago. Um, no, it's happened from the beginning of time and it's still happening. And that's what our country was founded on. And I just, I feel like by understanding that, uh, we can move forward. And next we'll talk about epigenetics and that, what that trauma really does do to our DNA. I love the topic of epigenetics and I felt like when I heard about epigenetics, it was just um, a lifesaver. It was like, thank God I'm starting to understand it and thank God um, we have some control over what happens in my lifetime and in the next lifetime because epigenetics is a newer science okay and what we found out is that while we have always thought that dna was static you know whatever's in your dna is in your dna and you can't uh change your dna but what we found out is not that the DNA can be changed. You know, the genetic code is a genetic code. That doesn't get changed. But what we found is that there are chemical markers um, in the epigenome. And depending on the environment, these chemical markers control um, characteristics and, and personality traits. And so depending on the environment, these chemical markers can either flick the switch on or flick the switch off and control gene expression. So it doesn't change the genetic code. It just modifies the expression of genes. This is really fascinating stuff. So what that's saying is, uh, number one, so if we look at it from um, a historical Part, right because there's kind of two pieces to the epigenetics but if we look at it from the historical piece if as a black woman I have an ancestor that was in West Africa knowing that people have been stealing Africans off the continent right and I know that this is happening I don't know when it's going to happen and it could potentially happen to me. I don't know if it's going to be a European person that grabs me. I don't know if it's going to be another African that takes me, but I'm out in the world doing what I do daily, but now I'm becoming hypervigilant and I'm hypervigilant because I know that this can potentially happen. So I have to keep track of what's going on and every little sound I'm paying attention to. So I'm looking, I'm smelling, I'm searching. I'm checking the trees. If I hear a rustle somewhere, 
I'm, you know, that stress hormone kicks in. I'm nervous and excited and anxious, right? So epigenetics is saying that I had those reactions because I needed to adapt to my environment. That's a normal adaptation to the environment that I'm in. If there's potential danger, I need to become hypervigilant in order to protect myself. That's a normal response that completely makes sense. Now that switch has been flicked on. If my ancestor then passed that same um, gene expression to the next generation and then to the next and to the next and to the next and my son goes to school and is hypervigilant, looking around, checking around, uncomfortable, anxious, high level of stress hormone, what's going to happen? That behavior that was an adaptive behavior, a behavior that made sense for the human body back when people are being captured on the continent and we're now in 2021 and he's in a school environment and he has that same behavior, he's going to have a hard time learning for one, of course, and for two, he's going to be diagnosed, right? He's going to, right. he's got ADHD now because he can't stay focused <sighs> on schoolwork. Right. And now we're going to medicate him. And now, you know, we've labeled him mm -hmm. and on and on and on and on and on. When in fact, that could be um, epigenetics. That could be a gene expression that was passed from several generations ago. Now it can be that. It can be the gene expression that was passed from several generations ago and um, watching numerous black men get murdered, you know, in very, you know, on the news and on the YouTube video that has now um, exacerbated that situation, right? 100%, so it can probably. be, you know, yeah. So it can be a combination of all those things, but the foundation was in place prior to his conception, yeah. prior to him even being born into the world. There's this foundation of intergenerational trauma through the epigenetics piece that has to do with the uh, epigenome. The other thing that happens is if we have a child, and so this is epigenetics as well, if we have a child and the child is born into a difficult environment and has adverse, you know, maybe mom is um, abusing substances and baby doesn't have proper attachment to mom and, and has a very tough beginning, but then is able to live in a home with somebody where they have supportive and a loving environment with, um, you know, opportunity and, um, you know, wrapped in a community filled with love and patience and understanding and people saying, you know, what happened to you, not what's wrong with you, why are you broken, but hey, what happened? And well, we know what happened in this child's past and we're gonna continue to love and support him. That same child that could have had all of those switches turned on, right, to modify gene expression can 
potentially not have those switches turned on or have the switch that gives, you know, has a positive interaction and a lot of love and have that gene switched on and then can perpetuate that in their lifetime later on, but then also one generation to the exactly. next, to the next, to the next. So it works both ways. And that was the excitement And that for me. speaks to family at the core. Right. Because, you know, you can't yes. have to have family. You, you, right. you know, to, move those genes That's on. right. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, and the support of family to be, you know, resilient for some of the things that might happen, you right. know, in your in a lifetime. So the epigenetics piece is exciting because it explains some of the... Um, issues that are happening today as well as gives you the opportunity to to have control over your future in your own lifetime but then potentially 14 generations after you because the cherry blossom study that was done about epigenetics teaches us that this has the potential to go for 14 generations. Which is awesome. Right. So you can have 14 generations of something positive or you can yeah. have 14 generations of, yeah. you know, of, of negativity. But um, it's empowering, you know. It is. And it, it speaks to the exact science and, I, and parenting and all the things that we're talking about, which I love. So tell me more about the lasting impact of toxic stress and what it is and how that goes with epigenetics. I think it's important to look at, and I want to do this illustration now because I really want people to understand what we're seeing and why we're seeing it. So if we look at, let's just look at historical trauma as it relates to COVID-19, right? Because that's, you know, the pandemic is really what we're going through right now, and it's an important, timely subject. We know that the highest rates um, have been coming from African-American yes, communities. It's important to really to have the right narrative and dialogue surrounding this because this has also given rise to new forms of, you know, discrimination and stereotyping, right? Because now people can't have COVID in peace because you have shame surrounding uh, COVID-19 and being sick and... Of course, it's happening in these communities because they don't know how to eat right and they don't know oh, how to, my God. Um, you know, have the proper hygiene. But if we really look at why these communities are being affected, there's a few reasons. Um, I'll say, you know, we can look at social injustice because we can say, I mean, like as a black woman, when they started talking about COVID-19, I don't have trust in the United States government. I don't, don't? have trust in, you know, <laughs> in the media, you know. So it took me a while. I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're trying to manipulate me in some kind of way. This is some kind of political thing. This is some manipulation. This is, I'm not sure what you're trying to do to me, but you're trying to do something and I'm not listening. You know what I'm <laughs> So I'm not believing COVID and I'm moving along, you know, with my everyday life. A lot of people of color are going to feel that way. Because of our history with the government, yeah, because of our history with the media. If in the beginning, when they start to say, well, no, no, this is real, then you, you need to start wearing face coverings. Well, I mean, we as a black person, we're not going to, or, you know, any person of color, 
we're not quick to go put a bandana, you know, to cover our faces because, you know, we know what's going to happen. And in fact, when you look in areas like Chicago, where you had black men wearing masks and gloves or bandanas on their face and gloves in Walmart, then they're being harassed by, you know, the Everyone. criminal justice system, you know, <laughs> that is, you know, Literally. and maybe you're going to get shot in the back or, you know, sure. we don't know what's going to happen. Nope. So you don't want to wear PPE because you're uncomfortable because you know what that means. I, I mean, like before there was Trayvon Martin, you know, I say this all the time because I need people to understand it. But before we even saw what happened, you know, the, the murder of Trayvon Martin, all my black sons were raised that you cannot wear a hood outside, can't wear a hoodie. They all know this. You can't wear a hoodie outside because if something happens, they will, you know, uh, misidentify you and you're going to get shot and killed. So you don't wear a hoodie. If you're black and you're male, you don't wear a hoodie outside. This is how the kids are being, you know, this is how it's one of many lessons you're teaching your kids just to live. Exactly. So we know that social injustice has impacted our community because it took us a while to get on board. It took us a while to, you know, be willing to wear the PPE. I think many people, if you live in Arizona, you have a hard time understanding a food desert because in many places in Arizona, food is plentiful. We don't worry so much about food desert. If you go on uh, one of the Native American reservations, you'll start to understand food what desert a food desert is. Because you'll, you'll see that, you know, there's not readily fresh fruit and vegetables available. Um, you certainly can't grow them in a gravel pit. Right, exactly. And, and you know, they're not uh, readily available often in the grocery stores. Or you look at um, certain communities. So I know a woman that she lives in the South Bronx in New York, and it's an area that... They have started to, um, you know, the gentrification process. So traditionally, this was a lower income area. They're starting to, of course, you know, push lower income people out and, um, you know, rebuild everything and so forth. And so here she's, you know, a professor, middle class woman. She lives in that area. She doesn't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, so she has to go to a farmer's market in Harlem in order to get her fruits and vegetables. Okay, well, now she's got to take public transportation because, you know, you don't drive cars readily in New York. Then you're going to the, so you get exposed on the public transportation. Then you're going to the farmer's market where there's too many people, so you can't do social distancing. Um, So now you're exposed in that way. And so you have several levels of being exposed, right? You're not readily accessing for yourself and for your family. You've got to take public transportation to get access to that food. When you get to the place where you have access to the food, you're not socially distancing because there's too many people from too many food deserts there trying to get food. So you have several layers of exposure happening. Um, Under capitalism, you're also looking at do the people live in a transient lifestyle? You know, are we moving from one place to the next? Exposure. Do we live in multi-generational families? Absolutely. People of color, we often live in multi-generational families. So you have the young people infecting the old people. All of these things are impacting the COVID-19 numbers in these communities. One of the big things that we can talk about in terms of COVID-19 in these communities is historical trauma. 
So when you go through historical trauma and you have uh, the impact of epigenetics, there are several things that happen because not only do you, you know, you interact with your environment, of course, through your senses, right? So you interact with the environment based on what you see, what you smell, what you hear, how you feel, but your DNA also interacts with environments. So if we have a hostile um, environment and the DNA is interacting with a hostile environment, you... You change the DNA, <laughs> yeah. so you know you have like the aging. Get better, and right? Get worse. Yeah, right. Okay. So you have, you know, so when we're in the hostile environments, you have aging of the DNA. When the DNA ages, we have chronic disease. So we have mm. heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, obesity, right? And what do they keep telling us about COVID nineteen? Your at risk if you have heart disease, lung disease, uh, diabetes, obesity, right? So if um, hostile environment um, drives chronic disease or comorbidity and you have hostile environments where, you know, you have African-American people, Native American people, and we're more likely to have the comorbidities and we do have the comorbidities because our dna has aged due to interacting with hostile environments <laughs> it's going to open the day. door right it's going to open the door mm-hmm. for us to have you know a uh, higher number of cases african american men have the highest instance of um, the comorbidities or the chronic illnesses and also um, according to this statistic, the highest number of COVID-19 cases. And it would make sense, obviously, because of uh, the amount of trauma they are currently going through and how hostile the environment is for African-American men. Of course, it makes 100% It makes sense. complete sense. It's not a matter of um, hygiene, right? It's not <laughs> a matter, even when we talk about eating, you know, people think that all of it is choice, but we have to look at how money and how the economy plays into this, right? We all know that it's much more expensive to buy fruits and vegetables than it is to buy garbage food. Fact. So if you have people that live in, uh, you know, have income disparities and live in, you know, in, in um, environments where they are economic hardship, they're not going to have the option of the healthiest food, right? So if we don't have that, again, we're more likely to be to you know have some of the chronic illnesses. If we have the chronic illnesses, it's opening the door to COVID nineteen, and that's why we're seeing those numbers. So if we go back to the basic discussion about epigenetics, what we're talking about is if we look at the pure a pyramid that the non black indigenous person of color goes through with trauma and we look at the same pyramid for black indigenous people of color. If we look for the dominant culture side, we'll see the pyramid start with conception, right? Right. And then after conception, they are potentially exposed to some level of childhood adversity. After that, we're going to move into some disruption of neurological development, right? Because when we don't have appropriate attachment, 
we, you know, our brain doesn't develop in the way that it's supposed to, so we have some of those issues. Then we move into social and emotional cognitive impairment, then at-risk behaviors, disease, and then early death, right? So even for everybody, if you have the childhood adversity, and depending on how much childhood adversity you have, you have the potential to die sooner. Remember, that's why we did. they did the whole study. Obesity thing in the first in place. In the first place. Right. Was because, you know, insurance companies paying money. And so, you know, that's why we stud- they studied it in the first place. Because this is going to impact insurance companies. Right. All these, you know, diabetes is very expensive to have. So we need to figure out, wow, if children are abused, they're more likely to have diabetes. Well, gosh darn it, we need to get our handle <laughs> on this abuse. Right. Because we got to stop right. paying for these people to have diabetes. But if we look at that same pyramid that's going to be ascended by black indigenous people of color, before we have conception, we're talking about the foundation, which is intergenerational trauma, historical trauma. That's at the very foundation. That's at the genetic level. Remember, the epigenome can mm-hmm. carry those chemical markers that get flicked mm-hmm. on and flicked off, mm-hmm. right? So we're talking about that. Then we're talking about the conditions in society. There you go. We're talking about the oppression, the go. discrimination that's already happening in society. So we have it... Before you're born. Before even birth, there are these two layers that are already with you coming you know, into the world. So then you have the black indigenous person of color being born. So by the time you get to that next level, which for uh, dominant culture would be the beginning, which is childhood adversity. By the time that person of color is at the childhood adversity stage, it's more likely that they have complex trauma at that stage. So if we start with the foundations and then we introduce any level of childhood adversity, we're looking at complex trauma. Then we're looking at the neurological disruption. Then we're looking at social, emotional, cognitive impairment. Then the adaptation of at-risk behaviors, right? So smoking, drinking, sex, all those things. Then disease and uh, a decrease in quality of life um, and then early death. So sometimes we're talking about as much as 20 years being cut off of somebody's life. I mean, that's why we're, we even talk about any of this in the first place, because when we come into the world and we have this foundation that already has the potential to be destructive to us, and then we're ascending this pyramid and we're already in pain, and we're already having some disruption in our appropriate neurological development, we know that people that are in pain hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. Including themselves. Including themselves. And so, (laughs) right, you know, and so that's how we're, you know, this is why this all becomes prevention, right? Right. Like this is how this all comes back around to But unless we talk about this, we will never get to prevention. You know, that's... That's why, you know, we even have this conversation because all of this comes back around 
um, you know, to the to the prevention. Um, we understand this pyramid and we understand pre-birth. Mm -hmm. If you are a BIPOC person of color, mm -hmm. if these kids are coming in, in on this planet, you know they are born with this trauma. You know epigenetics can make that better or worse. Right. And we know the sciences. So why are we not structuring our systems right. to love and give what we need to survive and thrive in all this, all kids? Now that we know, we know about ACEs, we know their impact, we know the historical trauma, we know the epigenetics and the stress, and I'm really excited to talk more about looking at addressing all this with a, with a culturally specific lens. In conclusion, I want to highlight a resource for anyone listening that I feel is great. There's, it's called Child Help, and they have a 24-hour hotline. They have a million different languages, and everyone that answers the phone is a licensed therapist. They understand, they understand historical, tra historical trauma. You can call them at any time, 1-800-4-A-CHILD. It's 1-800-422-4453. Call Child Help if you have any questions or want to talk to anybody privately, totally confidential. And we'll have more resources on our website for you as well. Ia, I want to thank you for the session today. I think it was amazing. And I'm really excited to take it to the next level. I want to thank again the Arizona Child Abuse Prevention License Plate Program through the Arizona Governor's Office, especially Nicole, our program manager. She comes to our meeting. She cares about us. But I just, without the support of others, of course, this wouldn't be possible. So this is the conclusion of ACEs and its impact on families. Ia, any closing remarks? No, it's just such a pleasure to be here, and I'm glad we uh, had this opportunity um, you know, to share so many thoughts and experiences and, um, you know, really trigger some authentic emotion and um, some valuable discussion around family. So thank right. you so much for having me. Thank you.